It is wonderful to be able on Resurrection Day to be right in a section of Bible exposition as we have been involved in a text that speaks of resurrection. And those of you who are new with us this morning and you have not heard the first two messages in our series in Romans chapter 6, I would like to invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 6. You're going to be able to do a little eavesdropping on our regular Bible exposition if you're new with us. And I'll do some review as so as to catch you up. We are involved in a series of messages entitled, Dead to Sin, Alive to Christ, from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. I've been saying to you that from Romans 6, 1 to 10, there are four great truths, four great promises, four statements of fact about those who are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And we're on the third of those four outline points. But before we come to the third great truth of our being dead to sin and alive to Christ, here in Romans 6, 1 to 10, I want us to review the last two great truths or facts or promises of grace about our relationship to Jesus Christ. And our review of these matters is, I think, especially helpful for those of you who have not been with us, those of you who are new or have not been with us for a while. Thus far, from Romans 6, verses 2 to 5, we've studied how the Apostle Paul has informed Christians and how they possess two great, two profound realities that are connected with our relationship to Christ. Number one, I said to you, and you might want to take notes if you've not been with us, those dead to sin's power or enslavement cannot now be characterized by its lifestyle. That's what we learned from verse 2. Look at Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2 says by Paul, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, you can't be characterized by a sinful lifestyle anymore if you're a Christian because you're dead to sin's power. You're dead to its enslavement. And secondly, we also saw last time, last Lord's Day, that those dead to sin's enslavement are now in vital union with Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. And we see that in verses 3 to 5. I said to you last time, last time that sin's domination has been broken in a person's life as a result of his repentance from sin and faith in the person and work of Christ's death, His burial, His resurrection. And when Jesus died on that hill on Calvary, God the Father spiritually then placed everyone who would ever believe into that same death, that same burial, that same resurrection with Christ 
into what is now known, of course, as the spiritual body of Christ. Listen again to how Paul states it in verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that is, baptized spiritually, and then its outward demonstration, water baptism, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by, which really should be translated through, through baptism, into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united, he says. This is a key word, beloved, a key word in this context, meaning union, participation. In fact, the Greek word, I didn't mention it last time, but the Greek word translated here as united is sumphatoi. Symphony, that's where we receive our English word. We are united with Him. There's a symphony with the death of Christ. With Him, Paul says, in a death like His. What was His death like? We were united with a death that Christ died that was sacrificial, that was substitutionary, that was vicarious. And then he says, we shall certainly, which speaks of assurance, Absolute assurance, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Just as we are united with Christ in His death, into His death, so we too with absolute certainty will be united with Him. There will be a sumphatoi, a symphony with Him in a resurrection like His. And we looked at that last time. His point is to use this picture of baptism, bapto, which means immersion, to speak of what spiritually occurred when Jesus died on the cross. That's the fulcrum. That's the hinge upon which our own <coughs> excuse me, spiritual death comes. His own death secured the past and future reality that when everyone believes in Christ's death and resurrection... They would be placed in a vital union with Jesus because of His dying on our behalf. And then our death, our spiritual death, and then our raising to walk in newness of life is within the very picturing spiritually of our being placed into the body of Christ. And then Paul, I believe, goes on from there to picture our spiritual baptism with what believers are now showing the world when they are water baptized. They are publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ by being water baptized in order to outwardly demonstrate what has already occurred spiritually on the inside. Spiritual baptism, which is listed here in Romans 6, 3-5, is what God does in us by placing us in the body of Christ. And water baptism, at least in that sense, is what... Paul says here in Romans 6 is what God declares as we declare ourself our allegiance to Him. Spiritual baptism is Christ's claim on us as His own. And water baptism demonstrates by our act of obedience our claim on Christ. Spiritual baptism, Christ's claim on us. Water baptism, our claim on Him. Our declaration. Now, Having said that, let me be crystal clear on this. 
I am not saying, as some may have assumed from my message last week, that water baptism is synonymous with our actual conversion to Christ. I don't believe that, nor have I ever taught that. I clearly said last time that the only way it will ever be said of someone if they're to be right with God, the sole criteria for it to be factually stated that someone's sin enslavement has been broken in their life, the utter ground for which it could be said of a person that they are headed for heaven instead of hell is that they are in an indivisible union with Jesus Christ through His death and His burial and His resurrection from the dead. It's what He did, not what we do. Even with water at believer's baptism, our vital union is grounded in what our Lord Jesus Christ did, not in my obedience It's not based or grounded upon even my own faith. That's importantly, but merely the instrument of the salvation that I've received. And even my own water baptism, which occurs after my conversion to Christ, is merely the outward demonstration of that inward relationship, which has already been established through union with Christ. That's a fact. That very vital union then is our conversion and our spiritual baptism. And that's what's being spoken of here in Romans 6. But, but the outward demonstration of that union, the picture of that union, that act or ordinance which we call water baptism, which symbolizes such a union, is exactly that. We are immersed in water to declare that we have died to sin and that we are raised to walk in newness of life. And if someone says they believe they're in a vital union with Jesus Christ through His death and His burial and His resurrection from the dead, it is, according to the New Testament, said to be demonstrated by the very picturing of what occurs in the waters of a person's literal immersion. It is that immersion into water, a death to sin's enslavement of us and a subsequent rising of the person out of that water to walk in newness of life in Christ. Now, as I said last time, this was the New Testament pattern of the early church. This is the very teaching of the book of Acts, for instance, as we'll see in a moment. And human illustrations about how to describe all the facets of life will fail, of course, especially if you push the illustrations to their unintended conclusion. So theologians have come up with a phrase that encompasses all three aspects of both the inward spiritual dynamics of a person, that is, their their conversion and their initiation into the body of Christ and the water baptism that speaks of that, that very reality. And they've used this phrase, conversion slash initiation slash baptism. Conversion, initiation, baptism. Conversion speaks of our turning to Christ from our sin. Initiation speaks of our being spiritually placed in the body of Christ. And water baptism speaks of our public declaration to a watching world that what water itself is to symbolize, the spiritual cleansing of my life from sin. Someone asked me, based on what I taught last week, and if I was not as clear as crystal, please forgive me, Lance, if... You're saying what is true. What if you only possessed the first two of those three concepts of conversion, initiation, baptism? What if there was genuinely true conversion in a person's life and a concomitant initiation into the body of Christ, but 
that person has not followed through in obedience to water baptism? That's a good question. And the answer is, of course they're a believer. Of course they truly know Christ. That's based upon what, <clears throat> excuse me, that's based upon what Christ has done, not what we do. And my answer is, indeed, if true conversion has occurred, of course that person is a believer. They are because, as I said several ways last time, the only basis for their conversion is the work of Christ on the cross. But the point that I was laboring to make, possibly not all too well perhaps, was this. The New Testament also commands that all believers are to be water baptized and that this should serve to be a reminder from the desire of their heart that they want to picture the very conversion and initiation that has come so that they are declared members of the body of Christ. It's public. It's an outward declaration that I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with His visible body. Beloved, that shouldn't be too hard for any of us to understand. That's precisely what the New Testament teaches. Now, having said that, don't for one minute think that, that this implies, when you say conversion, initiation, baptism, that it implies that being immersed into H2O somehow merits us a saving relationship to God. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Nothing we do in our lives merits us salvation by God. But water baptism, let me be emphatically clear, it doesn't conjoin with conversion and initiation to place us into the body of Christ. But what it does do is that it's a step of obedience in the Christian life, a major step, the first step, that when we are regenerated, converted, doesn't count toward our conversion, but it is the first step of it. Some of you might have been uncomfortable with my tying spiritual baptism and water baptism so closely. And if you did, you might even be a bit squeamish that the New Testament itself ties spiritual baptism and water baptism so closely together. But that really shouldn't be a concern. <clears throat> For instance, I mentioned the book of Acts earlier. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You might be very uncomfortable with the Apostle Peter's words in his own preaching to unbelievers of his day. And he preached this way. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is an amazing statement. Acts 2, 38. After having been asked, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Repent and be baptized. But don't fret. Don't be squeamish. This is not a problem. Peter is not teaching works salvation. And neither is Paul here in Romans 6, and neither am I when I am attempting to exegete these texts. And unless you've come from a denominational background, for instance, like the Church of Christ, who believe in their doctrinal statements and what is commonly called baptismal regeneration, believing that water baptism is indeed synonymous with, re with regeneration, unless you believe that, which I, of course, vigorously reject, 
you simply are not going to struggle with Peter's words at all. Because you understand that he's merely talking about a person who has had both an inward change, that's the repentance, and an outward manifestation of that change, that's baptism. That's giving the watching world evidence that the person has received the forgiveness of sins. The, the inward change of repentance, that's seen, it's demonstrated, it's pictured in the waters of baptism. That's precisely, beloved, why the apostle, or the John the Baptist in Matthew 3, when the Pharisees came to him and said, we want to be baptized, he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't tell me you've repented. I see your lifestyle. I see your actions. I see the character of your conduct. Don't come to me for baptism. Repent. And when you repent, the outward demonstration of that will come through the very character of your life, including your desire to be baptized. Don't don't get it reversed. You see, the New Testament itself is so easily able to use shorthand ways of describing the whole of conversion including both inward change and then outward acts of obedience like water baptism, as it appears here in Acts 2.38. But it really isn't teaching baptismal regeneration, not at all. And it isn't teaching works salvation, not at all. By the way, one of the best commentators on the book of Romans, Douglas Moo, in commenting about this very idea in Romans 6 about baptism, says this, quote, First, it is clear... That Paul refers in verses 3 to 4, that's 3 to 4 of Romans 6, to water baptism. But baptism is not the theme of the paragraph, and I told you that last time. It isn't the theme of the paragraph. The theme of the paragraph is our vital union with Christ. And he says that. This is what he's pointing to. Baptism is not the theme of the paragraph, nor is it Paul's purpose to exposit his theology of baptism. But then notice this. Baptism, rather, functions as shorthand for the conversion experience as a whole. You see? Douglas Moo isn't saying that water baptism is synonymous with conversion. It's Paul's way of merely using shorthand language to refer to the whole. And when someone was water baptized in the New Testament, it was an outward symbol. It was like a signpost. It was like a sandwich board, if you will which proclaimed something like this about the person. Conversion here, inquire within. That's what it's talking about. It's a public demonstration. I want everybody to know what's happened on the inside of me. You see? The conversion and spiritual baptism has already happened, and the water baptism is simply designed to depict it. But it's so closely on the heels of it, as far as the New Testament is concerned, that they wouldn't have even thought about delaying or refusing water baptism at all. Let me see if I can help you more by reading a section of a new book that in the providence of God I received just this week called The Mark of Jesus, Loving in a Way the World Can See by Timothy George and John Woodbridge. Wonderful. It so beautifully captures what I was trying to say last week about the first century church, and the water baptism that they experienced in the midst of great persecution. Listen to what they say. In the early church, baptism signified the transfer of loyalty from one realm to another. Haven't we been talking about that? Transfer from the loyalty of Adam to the loyalty of Christ. That's exactly what we've been talking about. 
Baptism was far more, they say, than an initiatory rite of passage. Rather, it involved a decisive transition from an old way of human life to a new and different way. From our old life in Adam to our new life in Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. They go on to say, baptism was an act of radical obedience in which a specific renunciation was made and a specific promise was given. The renunciation part, the act of publicly saying no, became prominent in the baptismal liturgy liturgy of the early church as we read in documents from the late 2nd century such as Tertullian's On Baptism and Hippolytus's Apostolic Tradition. From these sources, Timothy George and John Woodbridge say, from these sources we learn that baptism was often done on Easter Eve, isn't that interesting, in the season in which we now find ourselves, following a period of intensive preparation that included fasting, prayer, and the reading of Scripture. When at last the time for baptism itself arrived, the candidate would be called upon to renounce the devil and all his pomp. Facing westward, the direction in which the sun went down, he would exclaim, I renounce thee, O Satan, and all thy works. Then, interestingly enough, and maybe we should try this from now on, he would deliberately spit three times in the direction of darkness, signifying a complete break with the powers of evil and all their former claim on his life. Next, turning toward the sunrise, he would say, And I embrace thee, O Lord Jesus Christ. This would be followed by immersion, interestingly, three times in the name of the triune God, the receiving of a new robe, because by the way, they were most often baptized naked, receiving a new robe, anointing with oil, laying on of hands, and participating in the Lord's Supper. Baptism, they say, was not a private ritual to be performed in secret. It was a public confession of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Baptized Christians were often singled out for persecution. You remember I said that last time. And were sometimes taken directly from the sacred waters of baptism to the expected bloodbath in the arena. How would you like to have that happen? Immediately upon the heels of your baptism, you were marched to the gallows. You were marched to the arena to be eaten by lions or to be killed in some other way. To be baptized in the name of Jesus, they say, was risky business. It was a public declaration that the old has gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. They go on to say, very interestingly, during the Reformation, Ulrich Zwingli, who was, of course, one of the Reformers, compared baptism to the white cross that was sewn onto the uniform of the Swiss mercenary soldiers, among whom he once served as a chaplain. Wherever the soldiers moved across the battlefield, they would be identified to all who saw them by the white cross sewn onto their red uniform. They say this design can still be seen today on the Swiss national flag. Baptism too, Zwingli thought, was a public badge that identified one with a particular cause. Baptism marked the believer as a member of the Militia Christi, a soldier of the gospel fighting under the direction of Christ the captain. To be baptized in the name of the crucified and risen Christ means that we have acquired a new set of comrades. 
We now wear the same cross on our uniforms and we march together under the same banner, the blood-stained banner of the Lamb. We are soldiers engaged in battle. But we must not direct our weapons against one another, but against the real enemy who has come to steal and kill and destroy. Unquote. Baptism meant something to the early church. And it was precisely this quotation, what I was referring to in regard to your baptismal immersion. And it occurs, of course, both spiritually and literally. And I asked the question this morning, are you spiritually immersed into the body of Christ? Are you following what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 6? Do you not know that you have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Baptized into His death? Do you not know that? Are you willing to wear a white cross on your red blood-stained uniform as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, your commander-in-chief? That's what it meant to them. Now with that as a review, let me talk about the third great promise of fact here in Romans chapter 6. Look, look at verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul is saying this. First, you can't live an unbroken pattern of sin because you've died to it. That's number one. Number two, you, you cannot now be characterized with an unbroken pattern of life because you've now been placed into the body of Christ through your vital union with Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And now thirdly, those dead to sin's power now have been freed from its enslavement. That's our outline point. Those dead to sin's power have now been freed from its enslavement. Now the first thing that we have to talk about, because this is sometimes so very confusing for people, is that little word self there that's listed at least in my English Standard Version of the Bible. Do you see it listed there? We know that our old self was crucified. That's not a good translation. I think that's very unfortunate for any translation to have that word self or nature listed there. It's not the word for self, which could be the Greek word phusis. But it's not phusis, it's anthropos. And of course that's the word man. And it should rightly be translated, we know that our old man was crucified with him. You say, what's the significance? Well, the significance is that's... That's the entire context of Romans 5 and 6. Haven't we heard about a man, Adam, and a man, Christ Jesus? Yes, all the way back from Romans 5:12 and following. Now look back at Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. You see it there in verse 12, verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass. That's talking about Adam. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
Verse 17, if because of one man's trespass. Anthropu, anthropu, anthropu. It's talking about the man, Adam, but it's also talking about the man, Christ. The last Adam, the other man standing as the head of the race, a new race of people, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. The free gift is not like the, tra- the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. And you have to carry that right into chapter 6. He says... Do you not know, have you not figured out that if, if you say that you are living under the new man in Christ, then you can't continue to live in sin. That's verse 2. Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ spiritually with the outward water demonstration of that, do you not realize that we were buried with Him through baptism into death? And as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you understand that you'll be united in the death like His, and you shall certainly be resurrected in a resurrection like His? Don't you know that? And then he says again, we know. This is an established fact. We have certainty. We know that our old man was crucified. The corporate entity. This is not talking about an individual believer. He's talking to the whole of the Roman believers and by secondary application, the whole of us, the body of Christ, the body of Christ for all the ages. Do you not know? Do you not realize? We know this, that our old man was crucified. In other words, we've been totally removed from the old man's status. We're not any longer in Adam. We're in Christ. He's talking about these heads of the race here. Not an individual person and his battle with inward sin. He's already covered that in verse 2. You can't continue to live in sin if you say you're in Christ instead of being in Adam. Here he's talking about a corporate dynamic. Our old man, the corporate dimension, the whole of the body of Christ. Our old man was crucified with him. We've been taken out of one sphere of existence and placed into another. That's all true believers, my friends. All true believers. We've been dipped into, immersed into the body of Christ. We're not a part of the old sphere anymore. That's why he's saying, if we're not part of the old sphere anymore, then how do you live with some kind of pattern of sin? You better check your union. Oh, but here is where it really gets exciting. Because you have to ask the question here in Romans 6.6, what was the God, uh, God the Father's plan for placing all true believers into the body of Christ? I mentioned this on, on Friday, Good Friday evening. What was the plan? I mean, that was the fact that Christ died, that He was buried, that He was resurrected again on the third day. But what were the reasons, at least for human beings? What was the reason? Oh, look at the reason. Look at Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old man was crucified with Him in order for the purpose that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you realize not simply the facts about Christ's death on the cross, but for believers, the reason behind it? The reasons? Did you realize what happened when you yourself 
died in Christ when He died His death at Calvary, yours and my union with Him and His death, burial, and resurrection, it was amazingly in the gracious plan of God that one of the aspects of His Son's death and burial and resurrection from the dead was in order that your body of sin, my body of sin, which is the believer's struggle with an absolute enslavement to sin, with no way out, would be brought to nothing. What a plan. What a plan. This is, this is talking about God doing something for us in the death of Christ. Answering a dilemma. The dilemma of sin that we have no way out from. Our collective, corporate participation in the body of Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, has brought our state of total depravity to be nullified, to be abolished, to be destroyed. That's what that word brought to nothing means. You say, does that mean that Christians won't sin? Of course not. But it does mean, however, that the body of sin, which is not just talking about this physical part of me and not my mind. It includes my mind. Especially my mind. Because my mind is that which activates my body to do what it does. It's talking about the personification of sin in general. The totality of sin. The body of sin. It's had sin's devastating grip released. Sin no longer has mastery over us. I'd say that was a phenomenal plan. What a plan. We have no hope outside of this. There there is no solution outside of this. Listen to this. God wanted Jesus Christ to die so that our enslavement to sin would be utterly nullified. Are you rejoicing in that? You are if you battle with sin. You, you are if you battle with sin. You may say like I do as a believer, I'm not battling with sin's penalty. That's been taken up by the cross of Christ. And I'm not even in one sense battling with sin's power, that is its enslaving power, so that I can do nothing but sin. That's been answered by the cross of Christ. But I'll tell you what, one thing I do struggle with, and if you're a true believer, it's what you struggle with, and that is the presence of sin. The very presence of it. Its power and its penalty has been broken by the cross of Christ. Not through what we do, but through what He does. But the very presence of sin is still in the Christian's life. And will be until glory. And that's what we battle with. And yet, that's what Christ has come to do. To give us not only the supernatural Holy Spirit power to deal with the very presence of sin, but to tell us that by the death of Christ, God has forever abolished, nullified, destroyed the very penalty of sin and the power of its total domination in our lives. Do you think God is pleased when we glorify Him by His liberating us from sin, you better believe it. Do you thank God every day as a believer that one of God's very purposes in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection 
was so that you and I would no longer be enslaved to sin's power, its control, its mastery, its tyranny. I had a dear man come up to me after the first message in this series. And he said to me, I have experienced years and years and years of a particular kind of enslavement. And I've been dogged by that. And while I've seen an increasing frequency of righteousness in other aspects of my life, the very presence of this particular sin, it seems to me, has enslaved me. And he said, thank you for that message because it has caused me to see who I am in Christ. And it's caused me to want to deal with that area because I realize that sin no longer has the tyranny. I don't have to do that. I'm not forced to do that. I can see its power broken progressively as well in my life. Not just substantively at the cross, but progressively as well. I can see it happen. Beloved, I don't believe you could read more glorious words off the pages of the New Testament. Here's humanity's answer to the dilemma of sin. And I want you to notice also something that Paul says in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's been set free. Oh, this is, this is great because what he does is he particularizes it. Notice, for one. For one who has died. In verse 6 he says, our old man. That's all of us. Here he says, for one who has died. The particularity of your own old man status in Adam, complete with enslavement to sin, for which you have no liberation, can be brought to nothing. And it's because all true believers have been set free not to live sin-enslaved lives in Adam, but to live lives of righteousness in Christ. You're characterized that way. The deadness to your own body of sin. They've seen their body of sin, not just their physical body, but the body of sin as personified in the evil desires of our minds. Clearly, past tense, crucified, he said. Past tense, our old man was crucified. And we're enabled, according to verse 5, to now begin to walk in newness of life. Have you experienced that newness? Have you experienced that newness of your walk in Christ? It'll be because your life has changed. Because when Christ comes into a life, He changes a life. He causes someone. He regenerates that soul. He initiates them into the body of Christ. They declare through the public waters of baptism that I am Christ's and He is mine. And then you progressively walk in the newness of that life. Have you truly seen sin's enslavement brought to a Christ-liberating end in your life? I don't mean that you've seen sin eliminated altogether. That won't occur until glory, our glorification. I mean, have you seen your total life enslavement to sin liberated by the power of Jesus Christ's atoning work? It's the ultimate question worth asking. That's the $64,000 question. Have I seen sin's enslaving power broken by the power of God's? 
And guess what? That's not all. There's a fourth. There's a fourth fact, a fourth truth, a fourth promise of grace. Look at it in verses 8 to 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, notice this, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Oh, what a, what a final indicative, what a final fact. What a great promise. We have the assurance, according to verse 8, that if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. Oh, what words off the page. It means that genuine Christians can now live in this life and also in the life hereafter in light of Christ's own resurrection power. What an affirmation on Resurrection Day. What a most appropriate truth to speak of resurrection. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. The reason you and I as believers don't have to live under the tyranny of sin anymore is because, as Paul says here in verse 9, we know, there's another, we know, we have the assurance, it's a fact, it's a promise of grace that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And I love this. Death no longer has dominion over Him. It can't contain it. Wasn't that what we sung in the great hymn? That the, the shackles, the dominion of sin were forever broken when Christ came out of that tomb. If my new head of the race, Jesus Christ, has, number one, been raised from the dead, number two, will never, never die again, number three, death no longer having dominion over Him, and if my life is now hidden with Christ in God, then all these promises will also be true of me and everyone else who believes. What a comfort! What an assurance that you'll be raised from the dead, that you will never die again, and that you will not have death, have dominion over you. Not because of what you do. Because of what Christ has done. Oh, I love how one of the commentators puts it, Thomas Schreiner. Believers will live together with Christ because now that Christ has been raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Those who belong to Christ will share in His triumph over death. Christ no longer dies because the dominion that death exercised over Him has been broken. Christ willingly submitted Himself to death and its rule so that He might free those who were under its authority. And we were the ones under its authority. And we've been freed. We've been freed from sin. You don't have to do it anymore. You've come this morning and you might have said, even as a new visitor, even someone who may never have been here before, I've got sin in my life. It's dominating me. It's all over me. I can't, I can't get around it. I can't work through it. It's the dominating force of my life. I can't do anything but sin. And even when it appears as though I'm not specifically planning and strategizing or sin itself, it's just that Satan and his minions are pausing to reload. 
And when they do, I fall into that trap again. It's enslaving me. I don't know how to respond to it. I don't know how to get out of it. I need an escape. Guess what? On a human level, it's not going to happen. You can try to morally reform yourself. You can try to go to church as much as is within you. You can try to give a lot of money. You can try to pray prayers. You can try to sing hymns. You can try to do good works in the community. You can even be water baptized. And guess what? It will merit you nothing in the battle with sin. It won't. Because you'll fall into that same pattern of sin over and over and over again. You need a sin-enslaving power broken. And it is Christ's. Because He died to sin, not His sin. He didn't sin. He wasn't a sinner. It's our sin. It, it, it was ourselves who should have died and been judged it was ourselves who should have experienced the fierce wrath of Almighty God. But it was for our sakes and for our sins He died. He died to sin. He died to the sinful enslaving that you and I experienced, not Him. He was a righteous, sinless man dying for unrighteous, sinful people who were the ones who actually deserved to die. What a mystery. God the Father chose with Christ's full agreement that it was to be that way. That's a, an answer to the human dilemma that transcends us. It, it, it had to come from another world because this world is sinful. And in a conclusion of these four promises of grace, Paul says that Christ died once for all. Never to be repeated. That act of, of death on the cross was the event, the event of history, the history of all histories, was an act of substitution which will never be repeated. And Paul says he was approved by God the Father, having accomplished the work that the Father set out for him to do, and thus the life he lives, he lives to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it there? That last phrase, the life he lives, he lives to God. And because verse 4 says that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Christ also now lives his own resurrected life to the glory of the Father. Beloved, if this is true of Christ, then how much should it be true of us who are in Christ? Are you living to the glory of the Father? Have you seen with Christ's once for all death to sin's tyranny that your life now is a life being lived to God? Are you still battling with sin enslavement? Do you claim your life is to be lived in light of Christ's own death to sin? You live in light of your own assured resurrection from the dead, living in all ways to the glory of the Father. Could all of this be said of you? It is indicative of you, of you if you're a Christian. But if you're not, then those who are not dead to sin's power are still characterized by its lifestyle. Those who are not dead to sin's enslavement are not in vital union with Jesus Christ. 
Those who are not dead to sin's power, its enslavement, have not been freed from it. And those who are not dead to sin's enslavement, you don't have a different Lord of life. That's that fourth point, and it's driven home to us with mighty power. We live a different life. We have a different Lord of life. It's Christ. We look at His His work on the cross and we look at the pattern that He set for us because the life that He lives, His resurrected life, He's living to God. Do you live to God? Do you live to the glory of the Father? These are what genuinely characterize believers in Christ. And what we obediently do in light of these truths... Paul can only now say in verses 11 to 14, this is what you've got to do. This is what you must do to live in light of this. This is the obedience factor. I've given you the facts. I've given you the truths. I've given you the promises of grace. And then he says, beginning in verses 11 all the way through 14, this is what you're supposed to do about it. And I can't wait for us to find out what we're supposed to do in light of these truths about our character. Thank you, dear Father, for giving us the truth that we are Christ's and Christ is ours. O Lord, You have marvelously, wondrously shown us the truth and it is from the very pages of the New Testament. You've given us a whirlwind of Wonderful promises of grace. You've challenged us to consider, is this who I am? Is this my, is this my character? At least in light of these facts. And does my character issue forth in a declaration that Jesus Christ is my new Lord of life? I'm not my Lord of life. Satan's not my Lord of life. No one is the Lord of my life except Jesus Christ. Oh, may it be true not only of our constitution, our status, but our character, both what is true about us and what is true when we obey. Father, I pray that no one would walk away from this message not living in resurrection power power to say no to sin and yes to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.